0: This is The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC.
1: Hi, good afternoon. It is me, Cindy Adams, Madam Adams, the same Madam Adams who harangues you in my column Monday through Thursday, four times a week, every week in the New York Post. You're stuck with me, or at least you have been as of now. I've been away for weeks, as has everyone else. I'm stuck with my housekeeper, who I no longer even talk to. This is my first time back at WABC, after all the miseries we've had. So I am negative. That doesn't necessarily mean talent-wise or anything. My room is negative. My mic, negative. The way I'm going, even my brain is now negative. My dog is negative. Let's not even discuss my talent. Anyway, I'm back today for the first time. And I figure right now, I just want to make one New York City political comment. And if anyone disagrees with me or anything, just remember I am negative. But I could get positively nasty if you disagree with me. My one comment is about Manhattan's new DA, Alvin Bragg. This Bragg has little to really brag about. Manhattan's new DA, Alvin Bragg. He's putting stabbing all of a sudden into the same criminal capacity as playing jacks also nice that civil servants are also in-house family members. I mean, you trade one mayor's well-paid wife for another mayor's well-paid brother, Adams. That's my name. But we are not related. It's nice that His Honor Adams, with 10 minutes into the job, is already making us look like we want de Blasio back. (sighs) Okay, right now, my guest will be Stuart Slotnick. He is the attorney's son of the man who was called for years our greatest criminal lawyer in the United States of America. He is Barry Slotnick. James Patterson, who is known definitively as the world's greatest bookseller, has just put out a book about Barry Slotnick. The title, The Defense Lawyer. It's about Barry Slotnick, known for years as America's best criminal lawyer. Now, I'm going to come up to Stuart Slotnick.
0: All the dish that's fit to air Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC
1: right now my guest is Stuart Slotnick I have said that earlier in the program but in just in case you weren't paying attention I'm saying it again he is the attorney's son of the man who was called for years our greatest criminal lawyer in the United States that man was Barry Slotnick, is Barry Slotnick. James Patterson, who is known definitively as the world's greatest bookseller, has just now put out a book about Barry, Title: The Defense Lawyer. It's about Barry Slotnick, known for years as our best criminal lawyer. Now comes his son to talk to me. Stuart Slotnick, before we go any further, say hello, Stu.
0: Hello, Cindy. Hello, everybody.
1: That's enough. Okay. Now, how did this idea for a book come along? I mean, the publisher, the pub date. Tell us all how it started.
0: So the book was always in the works. It always wanted to happen. But it never did happen. This Every year at that time of year, someone would come forward and say, I want to write the Barry Slotnick book. I want to write the Barry Slotnick story. And it never happened. And every year someone would approach us and then fade away. And they would never carry the ball. And then a few years ago, someone called up and said, I want to write the Barry Slotnick story. It's a great New York story. And it was that time of year, and we said, okay, And we took a meeting and this person just happened to know james patterson and he reached out to patterson and said what do you think about this for an idea not reaching out to him to say do you want to write this but what do you think about it as an idea should i invest my time into it and patterson said i'll take a meeting and that's really how it started we had a meeting with patterson and my father and me and we talked about what could be in the book And the stories and the stories that ended up in the book. And Patterson said, you know what? Let me think about it. I'll get back to you in a week. And a week later, he said, it's a go. That's how it happened.
1: Barry, who never in a whole decade ever lost one case. And we'll talk about all of that. He is now retired a bit in Florida. So how did you do this book? How did you get access to all of these cases?
0: So, as you know, many of the cases that my father worked on over the course of his career were very high-profile cases. There, there was tremendous amount of information available to Patterson's researchers and co-author Benjamin Wallace, and they worked together very hard, doing tremendous amount of research. They, at one point... Someone even went to the Library of Congress, pulled transcripts from trials that were on file there, and read them for days and days on end just to make sure they got it right. They got all the facts. They got the stories. And so there were interviews with my father, with my mother, with me, with friends of Barry Slotnick former partners of Barry Slotnick, judges that had presided over cases.
1: Some of Barry the best Slotnick judges Price. money can buy, I might add. Well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and, and former <laughs> adversaries as well, prosecutors that went up against my father back in the day. So this, this was a very long process that was very well researched.
1: Now, he had tough guys for clients, sweet little names like Gotti, Colombo, Gigante, who was known as the Chin, Noriega. Did you ever meet, I mean, I know because I was a member of your family almost. I was very close to the Slotniks all my life, so that's why I know some of it. Did you ever meet any of them? Or how about this question? Did you ever fear for yourself or your family or your mom?
0: You know, there were times. So when I was in high school... And I was working at Sam Goody in the gallery in White Plains. I was up at the cash register with Sam Goody. For those today that don't know, it was a record store. They had a new invention called CDs that we just started selling back in the 80s. And I was at the cashier, and I got a phone call. And it was from one of my best friends growing up. And, it, and he was stuttering. He, could, he was stammering. He couldn't even speak. And he said, your father, he's on TV. He got attacked. And I said, what are you talking about? Are you talking about a case? He's working on a case where someone got a He's like, no, your father got attacked. Uh, I said, is he okay? And he's, he, I don't know. Uh, and he literally could not get the words out. So I hung up the phone and I called the home phone. Now, this is back in the days before caller ID yeah. and before call waiting. So I was calling home and the number was busy no one gets a busy signal anymore this was before cell phones so i couldn't reach out to anyone so i was calling home and calling home and it was busy and it was busy and it was busy and finally my mother got got picked up the phone and i said mom and she knew immediately and she said he's okay and that was you know when there there was a time that my father was attacked it was after he had Won the Gotti trial. It's after he won the Bernard Goetz trial, which was a, a racially polarizing case in New York City. And he was coming out of his office one day, and two guys on a motorcycle with helmets that with tinted face plates came up after him, jumped off the motorcycle, hit him with a baseball bat. My father believes that there were nails in the baseball bat, and hit him, broke his wrist as they were swinging for his head. He put his hand up. And um, that was a really scary time in the Slotnick family. And for a short period of time, we had company every single night from about 10 p.m. to about 7 a.m. And that guy's name was Joe, and he was a big, scary-looking guy with a shotgun. And, what I remember,
1: yeah. what I remember very well, is that your father had arranged a pre-arranged signal with your mother. And it was something like, go to the wall. That was the the prearranged signal. That meant if he called her out of the blue one night and said, go to the wall, it was a signal for her to gather up the kids, her money, her whatever, her possessions, and go to their secret hiding place to be safe because the guys were out there. Is that correct?
0: That's true. Go to the wall is the code, and the wall was a wall outside my grandmother's house, my father's mother, Rose Slotnick, who lived in the Bronx, and there was a big wall outside of her place, and that meant go, take the kids, take everyone to, to his mother's house. And he had to invoke that panic alarm twice. The first time he had to do it was back in the 70s. I was just a baby at the time, but my father's office was bombed. And I had just been there with my mother. She had stopped by and she had left in a short time thereafter. The bomb went off. No one got hurt, thank God, but go to the wall. And my mother packed me up because I was a baby and and they went. And now there was another time when go to the wall was invoked. And that was one day my father, as you know, was a lawyer for Joe Colombo. And Joe Colombo fought very hard for Italian Americans. And didn't did they
1: went, get shot together?
0: They get well. My father didn't get shot, but he was standing six inches at Joe Colombo's side when Joe Colombo was shot, yeah. which which really incapacitated him. Yeah. And it was at a rally in Columbus Square. Yeah. For um, I remember that. I remember. Yeah. And it was uh, so that was the second time, and it was you know a terrible thing my father went to the hospital and the doctor said to my father and you know colombo's guys all look to my father because my father at a very young age became his lawyer who was somewhat unheard of and everyone looked to him and the doctor the surgeon said to my father he's not going to live through the night and my father oh. said you better do whatever you can to make sure that doesn't come through because there's a lot of people here that want him alive and they were able to save him, but he was never the same.
1: Okay. There are so many things I want to say that I know and that I want to ask. But before I get into them with all of your celebrity names that, that Barry handled, the, my favorite, favorite, favorite story, if you louse it up, I'm going to tell it. But I want the story of the time that he, that one of the gangsters, his dog, Bullets, his police dog, Bullets, had bitten a third person and was set to be killed for having hurt a third person. What's the yeah. story?
0: So this is what my father calls his first death penalty case. Vincent yeah. Giganti, otherwise known as the Chen, he was the person in, that used to walk the streets of Grennett's Village in a bathrobe and the FBI always said that that was an act that he was pretending that he was crazy so long before then when my father was a student at New York University School of Law and Giganti was just one of the guys in the neighborhood down in the NYU in the village area he had a dog named Bullets that was a German Shepherd and he loved this dog and Bullets had a proclivity to bite people and one day He bit someone and it would have been his third bite and that would have been they would have put the dog down. Yeah. So they had a hearing. And at the hearing, before the complainant came to testify, my father walked outside, brought in several German shepherds on leashes and said, please pick out the perpetrator of the bite. And of course, the complainant couldn't, and bullets went free. I think that's something that forged a relationship of great trust. It showed some creativity. No one had ever seen a dog lineup before in the history of the world. And so he won this death penalty case. It's
1: my favorite, favorite story, because what he did is go around and, and, and round up dogs. They all looked alike. Who the hell would think of something? Like that, and put them in, in 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 a in a courthouse. Nobody would think of it, but Barry. It was absolutely brilliant. And this gigante loved that dog more than he loved anything else in the world. And he had said, as I recall, Barry telling it to me. He said, "I'll bomb this place. I'll kill everybody. I'll de- decimate the courthouse. He was going to de- make destruction come if he couldn't get his dog out. Am I right?"
0: Well, luckily, he didn't have to do any of those things. Yeah, and, well,
1: okay. You're a lawyer. Yeah, don't bother with me. Don't <laughs> well, either agree say, with me or get the hell off the radio.
0: Well, let me tell you something. He used that strategy years later when in a case in Crown Heights where uh, two Lubavitch Jewish guys, Hasidic Jewish guys, were accused of beating a black person in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And my father used the defense of all these Jews look alike because at trial he made sure— <laughs> that every day there was a busload of Hasidic Jewish men in the audience. They would show up every day at 8 in the morning before the courthouse opened. They'd wait in line, and they'd file in, and they'd occupy every single seat in the courtroom. <laughs> and when it came time for the two defendants who were on trial to be identified, my father asked for them to be able to sit in the in the pews with all the other Watchers that just happened to be Lubavitch and no one could pick them out. And his his theory was all these Jews look alike.
1: Oh, it's so great. It's absolutely such a great story. OK, I have so many things, but now I have to I'm, I'm almost jumping. Tell me now before I throw you the hell out. I need to hear the story about Bernie Getz. Now you have to tell everyone about the subway gunman in case people who are eleven years old listening to us. It's a favorite story and a famous story. Go, go, go.
0: So Bernie Getz was a New York City guy. He was taking the subway one day and he was surrounded by four young thugs. Bernie Getz was white and these four thugs were black. And I say that because it became a very racially polarizing case. And they surrounded him, and they said something to him that he perceived that he was about to get robbed, and he took his illegal gun out, and he shot all four of them. They all survived. One was paralyzed, but they were bad guys. And it was the case of the century until O.J. Simpson came around many, many years later. And that's a case that my father tried and and Bernard Goetz was found not guilty. It was an insurmountable case because there was a videotape that Bernard Goetz made and he said, I wanted to kill those guys. I wanted to gouge their eyes out with my keys. My only problem is that I ran out of bullets and I would have kept shooting. He said things in his mind that he believed happened that actually didn't happen because he was under so much stress. And this case was in the paper every single day, on the news every single day. My father would have press conferences every single day. Then the Manhattan District Attorney's Office would have a press conference in response to my father's press conference. Then Al Sharpton would have a press conference. Then someone else would have a press conference. It's like Twitter of back in the 1980s. You know, Back then there was no Twitter. And so they go on the news and they, they do these press conferences. Nowadays, people just post stuff on social media and they respond to it. But ultimately, the case was tried and he won. And it was a very controversial case.
1: Oh, let me tell you. So I went to visit Bernie Getz. Your father told me to go and do an interview with him. I went down, it was on 14th Street, he lived in an apartment there. And I went all by myself and he opened the door, but he wasn't alone. With him at his side was a live chinchilla. A chinchilla opened the door and said hello to me. I have never opened a door anywhere in New York and met a chinchilla. He was a little bit of a semi-nut, Mr. Bernie Goetz. Was he not?
0: He was. I will say this, Sydney. Yeah. Bernie Goetz was a very gentle guy, even though on that one day in the subway, he pulled out a gun and he shot four people. He's a very gentle guy, and he really loves animals. And that is clear. You know that.
1: Yeah, I, I know. Okay. Do you have
0: a chinchilla in your house? I I don't, but I always wanted one.
1: Yeah, I know. We all do. I felt so badly that I don't have one. You now have a lot of high-class clients. I mean, your father and you both had Melania. Did you not? Or do you not?
0: Well, you know, we don't, of course, as you know, talk about cases and... Yeah, I know all that. Okay, get away from that. Go ahead. Go. But, uh, you know, you had asked me a little earlier... Um, about how, had I met any of these people. And I just want to go back to one story that is, no one really knows about, and that's when I was in high school and my father was trying the John Gotti case. I brought my entire high school class to watch John Gotti's trial. And my father was able to preserve two rows where the entire class filed in. And I remember my father, I was up at the well, and my father was like, John, come over here. This is my son, and he introduced me to him. But he goes, "Come say hi to his class. They're all here." And John Gotti didn't want to do it. And I said, "Come on, John, come on over here." And he didn't want to do it. And he said, he took him by the wrist and he pulled him over, and he brought John Gotti to the to the to the edge, and he looked at the class, and he said, "How's you doing?" <laughs> and that was it. And he was a very shy guy, very soft-spoken. Everybody is
1: shy as far as, far as you're concerned. <laughs> he was shy. Getz was shy. You don't sound too shy.
0: Uh, well, I'm not shy, and not everybody's shy. But, you know, when, when you're in court and you're facing jail for the rest of your life, you should be a little shy.
1: Then, let me tell you that Gotti was someone, my husband, Joey Adams, the comedian who is now gone, as you know, he— he knew him because they all worked at nightclubs in the early days, and it was those guys who owned the nightclubs. I'll tell you a story. One day, a lot of years ago, when we were all wearing jewelry, we could all wear and afford jewelry then. One day, all of mine was stolen a whole bag full. I was in tears, and I said to Joey, What am I going to do? And Joey said, Take it easy. He made one phone call. I never asked to whom. He didn't tell me to whom. He made one phone call. The next morning, that whole bag of jewelry came back intact. Word gone I want out. to tell you, it's an interesting place around here. That's well, all I can tell you. And when Joey would and I would go into an Italian restaurant... A guy would put down a bottle with a crash on it, and he said, Coy to see a JG. A <laughs> bottle of red wine. No, he didn't even say wine. He said, A bottle of red. Coulda see a JG. So, and I did a, an interview with Gotti when he was in prison. I mean, I have done some very high class, very high class things. How come you got to be a lawyer. Why couldn't you have become an accountant or a silk salesman?
0: Well, I never really liked math, so that <laughs> that means I'm not going to be an accountant and I don't think I really had a choice in becoming a lawyer. When you grow up in Barry Slotnick's house, I was in court with my father my entire life. I remember I was so little and I had a coloring book and I had crayons and I was sitting in the pews as my dad was arguing a case. And that's it's true. It's actually true. I'm not I'm not making it up. And I remember waiting for him to finish and I was coloring and the judge was yelling at my father and ripping him a new one for whatever reason. I don't know what case it was. And I just remember saying to my dad, why is he being so mean to you? And my, <laughs> my father said, well, that's his job. And he said, well, I said, you know, he could be a little nicer. But, I, you know, I remember I, at all points in my life going to court with my father, and watching him. Years later, I became a prosecutor in Brooklyn, and if he was on trial, I would walk over and stop by and say hello. And it just sort of happened. I went I went to law school. I went to NYU Law School, the same law school that he went to. And actually, it's interesting, bringing up Gigante again, that that's where my father met Gigante, down in the village. And then when I was living in the village, and Gigante's place was around there one night we were walking on mcdougall street and my father and i and my mother bumped into vincent giganti and another man who was walking with him and the other guy looked at him and he says berry and my dad said oh hey you know we just account uh, 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 an encounter on the street and one of the guys was vincent giganti and he did not look well Now, I didn't know him before, and I knew what his reputation was, that he was, you know, they said he was crazy like a fox, Cindy, said he was faking. Always wore the bathrobe. Always wore the bathrobe. This time he wasn't really wearing a bathrobe, but he was walking with someone in the street, someone that was escorting him. And from the look in his eye, I knew that he was not in charge because he looked at my father, and it took a second for him to recognize him. And the guy said to him, Vin, this is Barry. And then Giganti looked at me and goes, oh, Barry. And it took him a second to the gears kicked in. So, you know, I think that maybe ultimately the Feds has got it wrong in that case. But that's a long time ago.
1: OK, the the point now is. Even though I find you very boring, I now have to end this discussion or they're going to fire me. I love you. I love you, Stuart. I loved your father. I love your mother. I love Barry Slotnick. And thank you for coming on. And please remember, if you're a lawyer and I'm in trouble, don't charge me.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Talk to you later. A name you know who's in the know. It's The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC.
1: Last week, The New York Times, or the week before, The New York Times front page was about Rikers. Every New York magazine has had Rikers. Even New York magazine had Rikers on its front cover. Lately, the news on TV has been about Rikers. Recent Rikers Island graduate is William Mercy. You don't know the name. I didn't know the name, but he sent me a letter. It seems he was Jeffrey Epstein's cellmate. I therefore read what he wrote. He told me that his crime in 2019 was underreporting income from selling adult ads to escorts, to various, and then the, the ads were in various newspapers. After MCC prison, Mr. Mercy was transferred to Rikers, and he said in his letter to me, inmates I watched over included a prisoner who chopped his lawyer's head off. Then, he said, my next cellmate, Jeffrey Epstein, turned up July 2019. I had the 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. watch. Jeffrey was scared to death. We didn't talk much at the beginning. I didn't even ask him too many questions about his little habits. The one question I did ask him was, Did Clinton like his girls young? His emphatic response, no. Bill liked his women mature. Going on, going on. He told me that food at Rikers was never enough. 200 inmates would wait in line. We had to eat at the speed of light, he said. You had to dispense your tray quickly or hear about it what was his duty there in rikers my kitchen job was five hours mopping floors and sweeping including heaving bags and bags of garbage into loading dock dumpsters one day an officer asked are you looking for sentenced help this meant sentenced inmates relocating to other facilities for work duty when those facilities needed workers he meant the tombs the tombs is another city jail well known and it's next to 100 center street he said i was handcuffed and ankle chained in a back and back of a corrections bus The next morning, I found I am cleaning courthouse cells and asking evil-looking street hookers to move their feet so I could sweep their holding areas. You want to see an unhappy bitch? Check out a street hooker who was just arrested and who spent a sleepless night in jail. Not pretty you don't flirt with them they are not receptive this is not me speaking this is inmate mercy going on he said my final rikers time required appearing before a judge this meant sitting in six more holding cells an entire day handcuffed ankle chained put in a plastic enclosure Final, 9 p.m., I was dis- escorted to the bus station, sold a metro card, and released. The end of my almost year of New York City imprisonment. But here it is, months and months later, and I still don't have my commissary money, and I have made 100 phone calls trying to find it. With Gislaine Maxwell's current trial, I don't think a lot has been already reported about the way she's living. Right after Jeffrey Epstein's death, his cellmate, Bill Mercy, sent me this. This is condensed from Mercy's voluminous handwritten pages. Quote, if you didn't want to kill yourself before you would after a few days at Rikers. Minus trained psychologists. It was inmates who, with a whole three hours training, had to watch four suicide cells on the second floor. Inmates were stowed away in 50 square feet with a cellmate and nothing to do but kill themselves. No commissary, no phone access. Training was mostly ogling the female psychologist teaching us. The pay, 12 cents an hour and up to 40 cents. Into this prison came such others as Bernie Carrick, El Chapo, Paul Manafort, Epstein, this is Mercy speaking, Epstein was soft as a pillow and not prepared to handle this. He requested protective custody. He was scared. He said he did not get over any of this. He couldn't understand it or stand it. Handling prison essentially occupied his mind 24-7. To sleep... He'd place an orange prison sock over his eyes. Epstein was initially brought into general population, a residence he was in not at all prepared to handle. He also complained about a laxative the prison gave him and asked them not to continue giving him what they were prescribing. Didn't matter. It's what they gave him. One time, Epstein returned to our cell with neck abrasions. So, did he try to hang up, which is the prison lingo for committing suicide? He wasn't talking. He wouldn't say. He struck me as depressed, suicidal. He sat down on the bare floor, his back to his bunk, eating the prison food out of a styrofoam plate. I asked, what the F are you doing? Why are you sitting on the floor? Said Epstein, it's just easier this way. That was his response. It was as though he were somewhat resolved to his fate that night. He'd been denied bail and was facing the reality of the rest of his life behind bars, much as Miss Maxwell is now. As usual, our conversation centered around his adapting to prison life. Then, one night, another watcher reported hearing the sound of tearing sheets. Conclusion? It was Jeffrey had killed himself. That Saturday morning we were informed at wake-up we'd be eating breakfast in our cells. We were locked down indefinitely. Why were we being locked in our cells? We didn't know. We learned Jeffrey Epstein had killed himself a few hours before, and the building was crawling with government agents. Assumption he had killed himself was reinforced when another inmate reported that in the wee hours, he'd heard the sound of tearing sheets from Jeffrey's cell in which he'd been left all alone after his bunkie had been returned to the general population, nobody killed him. Let nobody think anybody killed him. Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. That Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, I have no doubt.
0: It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WAVC.
1: Okay, we have now taken a station break, and now you are back to me. And I am going to give you the 411 on our new police commissioner as per some unnamed, savvy, long-time police department pros. Here's what they say behind closed doors. Quote, This lady will get great support from the police department. Four months ago, the new mayor especially said he'd appoint a black female. He already said this. He publicly limited himself to that immediately. So she fits the bill. So may I ask, okay, will underlings undermine her? They said, yeah, you bet you're behind they will. But because there's no alternative, it won't be overt. She has support. Higher-ups still work around her and take orders from her because they must. Nobody is saying she's the best thing to ever come along. But there is absolutely nothing negative in what she's done in her career so far. Okay, now I've given you that. So now I'm going to go into something about movies. This is just to show you how I know so many things. It doesn't mean that I really know anything, but I have to fill time, so I'm going to tell you about something else. Skinny, gorgeous Audrey Hepburn. Young people may not remember her. Older ones will. She was bigger than a planet in the 60s and 80s. Movies like Breakfast at Tiffany's, My Fair Lady, Roman Holiday. Comes now Apple Studios' bio pic about her. Everyone's grabbing some file about themselves. Liz Taylor did, Princess Diana, Elvis Whitney, Malcolm X, even Marie Antoinette. It doesn't matter. Whoever's listening to me is going to get a biopic. They'll take anybody. Blowing that so far, to me, seems the only one who doesn't have a biopic in her name is Jimmy Carter's wife, Rosalind. Also, laughing hyenas may already be phoning their agents if anything should line up for Kamala. Oh, yeah. Kamala. Now, the girl with the dragon tattoos, Rooney Mara, will play Audrey Hepburn. Luca Guadagnino, Guadag, whatever his name is, Luca, forget his last name. G-U-A-D-A-G-N-I-N-O, from Call Me By Your Name, is directing this movie. And everyone's happy, but Lily Collins you don't know who Lily Collins is of course you do she was hot in net netflix's series emily in paris and she had her heart and equally skinny bones and behind set on some day playing hepburn well she ain't going to i now would like to go into something Medical. All of this is just to show me how clever I am that I know so many things. I know police. I know films. I know medical. I don't know much, but I know a lot of different things. The medical colleagues have been speaking to me about Fauci. They have said it is important for him to be important, to face cameras, to be quoted. It's nothing new. Fauci has been around a long time, and when old ones of us worked with him during his HIV years, he was exactly the same. Itchy to be on TV, in headlines, out front, quoted, important. He craves it. We're not saying he deserves it. We are saying he craves it. Okay, I am now on to little dolls. Now, we just read in the newspaper that there is a new Asian-looking Barbie doll. It just pirouetted onto the runway. She's not the first to hit immortality in a doll-like image, however, let me tell you that. I'm going to say, although this has nothing to do with all the information I'm about to give you, but back in the Stone Age, there was a company called the Horseman Doll Company, and they put out a Cindy doll in my image and likeness. I don't know who bought it. I know I got a couple here that are still for sale. They're in my house, Cindy dolls. Anyway, in 2003, a Diana Ross doll popped out, wearing Bob Mackie. 2011, Farrah Fawcett, whose likeness was off her 1976 poster. 2015, Jennifer Lawrence. Jeannie Hadid, 2017. Tim McGraw and Faith Hill were Mattel's cutesome twosome. Taking special care, of her special parts since a plastic Barbie even beats a plastic surgeon, we got us Ben Affleck's latest multi-active wind-up toy. Following her athletics with Mark Anthony, Alex Rodriguez, Affleck Drake, David Cruz, Wesley Snipes, "'Casper Smart, Ohani Noah, Sean Combs, Chris Judd, "'possibly a PR person, a photographer, a retoucher, "'a gynecologist, and a male partridge in a pear tree.'" Oh, that's cute. So, ballerina Misty Copeland even burbled how immortalizing Barbie, not Swan Lake, but her dream was 2015, to be a Barbie doll. And then there was Jennifer Lawrence and somewhere along the line, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp? Yeah. Johnny Depp. Okay. Now I'm going to go into the new year. It's our new year. New year, new year, new year. Being a new year, I feel entitled To air my old years' grievances, like I'm going to start with Oscars. I mean, please, Nomadland was the big winner last year. Nomadland, the saddest, most dismal crap ever leaked onto film, like opening in 2021's most dismal times when we felt sad, lonely, sick, hungry, and for some, homeless. It was an awful, lousy movie. Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor, and Ingrid Bergman must have been up there applauding. And those PR-crazed boobs I hate when they dress in plastic elastic just to flash their own boobs. They're showing all their various parts in wardrobe, the width of scotch tape. That's types like Madonna, Ratty Jadikowski, Mrs. Legend, Dua Lipa. I mean, please. Okay, right now, we're coming to a station break. Come back, come back. I'll be back.
0: The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC.
1: Meanwhile, while I have been home, sneezing, coughing, and blowing my nose, and all the rest of you have been stealing from the refrigerator, there are humans who are out there doing great things. I have not been one of them. But on the opposite of snitch and famous were Justin and Haley Bieber. They don't exactly rough it. While I was home doing nothing, they were sunning and splashing. Where? In the Maldives at Soneva Yanni, wherever the hell that is. I never heard of it in my first place and I can't even pronounce it. Soneva Yanni or Johnny, J-A-N-I. I mean, doesn't everyone go there? Have respect. It's Earth's only hotel group with over one million Instagram followers. And I haven't even been there. And let me tell you what may be happening in our city. In our civilization, there is Selma Hayek's husband, Francois-Henri Pinot, the CEO of global luxury group Kering. It owns... You ready? Gucci, Saint Laurent, Alexander McQueen, Vuitton, Dior, Charvet, Bottega Veneta, Balenciaga, Brioni, De Beers, Bulgari, Tiffany. And now, pay attention, now he is sniffing out 57th and Fifth's 4th corner, Bergdorf's. That's what I am telling you. He has seen Disneyland. He likes running in Central Park. He practices magic tricks on international flights, and his favorite place, he says, I especially like the Aeolian Islands. Well, I mean, don't we all? Don't we all say the same? He did not mention Rikers, but if you want to know where to go, coming up. Valentine's Day, try the Aeolian Islands, or wherever the hell this place is, Yani in downtown wherever it is. I have no idea where it is. Right now, I cannot speak any longer, because I am not paid by the word. I just want to thank everyone for listening. I am Cindy Adams of the New York Post, and I am here again next Sunday. Same time, same station. I want to tell you, somebody sent this to me the other day. Supposedly, it was overheard at a coffee shop at Hudson Yards. A lady asked, please, can I get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And the manager said, sorry, our chef just left. (laughs) Me too. See you next week.